0: Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs,
1: and I'm Deanna Reasonover.
0: This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, brain surgery.
1: It's STEM for those of us who have a pH joke that's pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: what's new? Oh my goodness. Okay. I got very excited this week because I read an article on the New York Times website about how birds steal fur from dogs and other animals to build their nests. And it included videos of dogs, of a dog just laying there as a bird was just plucking fur out of its back. (laughs) And And then the fur started to look like the bird had a giant mustache. (laughs) like wario yes exactly he got a wario mustache (laughs) it was it was the highlight of my week another part of this um that i found really fascinating was that this was a phenomena that was very um widely known by people who watch birds but hadn't been scientifically studied so they were talking about also this sort of shift of of scientific study taking its cues from amateur bird watchers and kind of moving from things that were commonly known and talked about by bird watchers into, like, the scientific sphere and study. So I hadn't heard about anything like that before, which I thought was interesting.
1: I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's, it, I'm going to assume that the uh, animal fur provides a little bit of, like, cushioning and probably a little bit of insulation.
0: Yes, exactly. Precisely. Huh. Humph. Very oh. interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> How about you?
1: I discovered something exists that, of course, it exists because everything exists. Space juggling. What? It is when you juggle in space. My God. What? Imagine someone's got three balls, three Mm -hmm. um, juggling objects that they would have. Normally when you throw something in and you're juggling, you kind of are throwing it almost in an arch. So you're kind of throwing it up and knowing that you're going to catch it as it lands. Mm -hmm. Um, Space juggling is different because anything you sort of throw with force is going to just move in a straight line. Mm. So it's almost kind of like you're just... You're just, you You are juggling, but you're not throwing things in an arch. You're throwing things in a straight line, and then you're moving your hand to catch where it will eventually be.
0: Oh, so you have to anticipate where it lands rather than throwing an object from one hand to another.
1: Yes, you have to be athletic, something I am not. Something so I am not. It's, it's real <laughs> hand or eye coordination.
0: Wow, that's so cool. So are they doing that? I'd imagine it's less risky to do it inside, perhaps the International Space Station, rather than just like when you're on an EVA. I now know the term from all of our interviews with people and um, extra. Uh, don't ask me what an EVA stands for, but I know that's what they call spacewalks.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone is, you know, kind of going. Oh. Mission Control, I'm uh, I'm seeing the panel that needs to be rewired, but I, just let me practice with my scars out here. <laughs> I think they're just, uh, I think they're doing their spacewalks <laughs> and keeping it professional.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So today's episode is all about the brain.
1: First, we learn about the brain itself by talking to neurosurgeon Dr. Alfredo Quinones in Hosa. Uh, he regularly performs surgical procedures at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. We also got a chance to speak with Oscar-winning actress and songwriter Mary Steenburgen about a phenomena that's happening inside her brain.
0: Yes, and before we get started, these two interviews were done completely separately. We are not trying to use the medical information we learned from one interview to diagnose the story later.
1: Honestly, the brain is so fascinating. We could probably do a whole miniseries about it. But for today, we just wanted to tell these two stories.
0: Yeah, this whole episode is so fascinating. Let's get to our interview with Dr. Alfredo Quiñones Hinojosa.
1: This is a kind of a big question, but I'm so curious to hear your answer. How do you describe the human brain to people?
2: I describe the human brain as the unexplored frontier. Hmm. That organ we know so little about is like a a universe, and there are more synapses in our brain than stars in the galaxy. And in that sea, in that extraordinary, you know, galaxy, there are small little islands where function lives. And my role, whenever I do anything surgical, is to keep those islands intact.
3: Mm.
2: Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then you wonder why I'm in love with the brain. I mean, it is the unexplored <laughs> frontier. You know, when I was a little kid, I tell you a story, when I was a little kid, I used to watch this show in Mexico. You know, I grew up in very humble beginnings. My brother and I got a small little TV that would only play a certain amount of time during the day. And it was so poor quality that we tried to make sense of the images. But there was one show that would come out once a week. It was Star Trek. In Spanish, it was Viaje a las Estrellas, Star Trek. And I used to dream about... Navigating the universe, the stars, and how little did I know that one day I was going to be doing that every day? Because that's the way I feel. I feel like an explorer every time I go into that brain.
0: Have you noticed that Star Trek is a recurring theme on our podcast? Yes. I don't have a count in my brain of how many people we've interviewed have mentioned Star Trek as an important early influence on them. Do you think about the fact that there are people out there, like kids watching you right now on TV playing a scientist and the impact that you have on kids?
1: We'll have to see. I, you know, I don't want to speak for her because obviously I I only like to speak for myself. I've seen a lot of uh, my predecessor who played a scientist on the show, Polly Perrette, who played Abby. You know, she played that role for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of people say, like, you inspired me to be a scientist. Like, I'm a scientist now because I watched you. I know she does a lot of work, you know, um, scholarship and encouraging people. So I've seen the impact she's had. And um, I can't say how she feels, but I will, I will say it's very cool to be part of something that could possibly have an impact like that.
0: Yeah, because another recurring theme on our show is people's talking about, and I saw this episode of X-Files or I saw this episode of this and there was this person playing. You know, I don't know. We just we don't always know um, the impact we'll have going forward. But it's it's I'm so glad you have the job you do, because I think it's pretty cool. Mm You clearly have this sense of wonder about the brain and your work, but we were wondering if there was a moment in medical school where you learned something about the brain that really amazed you.
2: Oh, no question about it. I was a third-year medical student, and one night, here I am, walking through a long corridor at one of the Harvard-affiliated hospitals, the Brigham and Women's, and it was so long that we used to call it the Pike. And I was on my way on a Friday night to the library. That reminds me of what Santiago Ramón y Cajal, a Nobel laureate from 1906, who also came from very humble beginnings, said once, the chance and good luck does not come to those who want it. It comes to those who look for it. And I don't hmm. know if that's what I was looking for, but I was on my way on a Friday night past 11 p.m. to study. And here comes a very famous brain surgeon in the same corridor about to face me. And he pulls me over, tells me his name. I knew who he was. He was on the cover of magazines at that time. He pulls me over and says to me, what's your name? And I told him my name. He introduced himself. And he asked me out of nowhere, have you ever seen brain surgery? And I said, no. And he asked me, would you like to go to the operating room? And I said, yes, I would love to. Thinking maybe one day. He goes, okay, let's go. He takes me, waits for me. He gives me a set of scrubs, just like the ones I have right now, and takes me into the operating room. And I tell you, Diana and Jillian, when I walk into the operating room, a patient was awake, and they were doing brain surgery. And I walked around. First, I saw him awake. I thought they were getting ready to do the brain surgery. And then as I walked around towards the head, I realized that his brain was pulsating. And I learned over the years that what the brain was doing was dancing with the heart. They were going mano a mano, you know, just getting the blood supply, and the surgeon was stimulating the brain trying to find those little islands so that way they would leave those islands intact and take out this tremendously large brain tumor. That's how I fell in love with the brain.
1: Wow. What was your focus before this night? Was it uh, brain surgery or was it something else? No,
2: are you kidding me? At one time, I told one of my two friends, two friends from medical school, Ruben Govesi and Wells Messersmith, and Ruben is a very prominent uh, orthopedic surgeon in Wells, He's a GI oncologist. I told them one day when I was like a first year, year medical student, because I had done research in neuroscience and stuff like that. And I said, and I love to do things. I think of myself as a mechanic of the brain, as a carpenter of the brain, you know, and I always love to do things with my hands. And I was fascinated with the brain. And I asked him and I told him, hey, guys, I'm thinking about brain surgery. They looked at me and they said, are you crazy? You know, brain surgeons are the most arrogant people in the world. You know, no, 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 no. you don't fit that. Yeah, we got to find something else for you. And then so they sort of like, you know, this thought just went away. That was in first year. It was not until I was a third year medical student that I sort of revived. Before that, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I thought I was going to be a dermatologist. I thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon, a plastic surgeon, something else, you know. But somewhere along the line, when I saw that brain, I tell you, I realized when my knees buckle, you know, as I saw that, I realized that there was something magical about this organ. And I still feel that way. Every time I walk into the brain room and I get to do what I do, I consider it such a gift. And I get to learn from my patients and my patients get to put their life in my hands and we form such beautiful bonds and connections that words cannot even describe. How I feel about this profession. Ah, oh, that's incredible. Oh.
0: Well, now I don't feel like. Well, I I feel like you already answered it, but I'd love to hear you expound more on it. Our next question was going to be, does your work feel personal? But you just <laughs> talked about this indescribable bond between you and your patients, and you in relationship to the brain. Can you tell us more about emotionally what it's like for you to do this work?
2: Well, it's a roller coaster because it is personal. It is emotional. You know a little bit about my background. I I grew up in very humble beginnings. My parents never went to school. I grew up very poor in Mexico. I came to this country, you know, undocumented. And um, at a a very, very young age, I saw my own little sister die of dehydration when she was only six months old. And I was about three years old. So I always knew that there was something special about medicine. I didn't know what it was. But my grandmother was a curandera and a partera which means a town healer and a midwife. She was amazing. So giving service, you know, helping people who are in need was always part of my pedigree and my DNA, I like to think. But when it becomes becomes personal is when patients put their life in your hands. And there's a roller coaster because when they do great, I am so happy for them. But when they don't do great, I am so sad and I feel those emotions. And I gave a talk this morning to many, many medical students. And I told them that I have failed much, much more than I have succeeded.
3: Hmm. Where
2: I have never tried to fail is giving my patients hope. I will fight with them and their logos until the end. Hope is the last emotion that I want them to abandon because the moment that they lose hope, fear, overcomes. And hope is the only emotion that is more powerful than fear. So that's the only thing. So yes, it's a roller coaster of emotions, happiness, sadness. And uh, my wife and my kids and my puppies are the ones who get to see that part of my sight. The reality is that there are a lot of dark and sad moments, especially when my patients are not doing well. Just today, I got a text message from one of my patients. He himself and his wife you know, are my patients and uh, and I know they're not doing well. And you know what he asked me? He goes, Can you please be in touch one day if I'm not in this world with my son? And I you have no idea the weight that carries. I mean that they first of all that they feel that they have the trust to text me that. And at the same time, the frustration that I have in not being able to cure their disease and not being able to find a cure for cancer, which, you know, I have a huge laboratory and dedicated my life to science. So, yes, mm-hmm. it is personal. It is emotional. There are a lot of moments of happiness, but there's also a lot of moments of sadness. But once again, I go back to what I said. Hope. Hope mm-hmm. is the only thing that keeps me going. <laughs> Oof. I mean... To be able
1: to maintain that hope, Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's the extraordinary thing. I mean, it also is indicative of, you know, the successes of how far that field has come.
0: I I try to think about what it would be like to work in a field where they are making such rapid advances, but there's still so much that they don't know. Mm -hmm. And feeling like maybe it's just out of their grasp to be able to help this specific person with this specific issue relating to the brain and how frustrating that might be, you know, to, to feel like, oh, in 10 years, we'll know what to do mm-hmm. in this circumstance, but we're just not there yet. I don't know what that must feel like, you know, in your work.
1: I don't know that I anticipated, this is slightly separate, I don't know that I anticipated when we started doing this podcast um, how incredibly human these Mm -hmm. stories about science would feel, because I was like, oh, this will be a great way for me to, you know, like learn some science and ask some questions that might seem kind of silly. But I, I really didn't anticipate how much the emotions and the feelings would play into it. And that's, you know, that was a misstep on my part, but I'm learning so much, I feel like.
0: Well, but I also feel like it's been the way that Tamika structured this podcast Mm -hmm. because she's encouraging us to talk to our guests about who they are as people and not see that as separate from what they do. Mm -hmm. And then our guests are really generous in opening up to us about themselves. I mean, that was incredibly generous of him to share with us about what it's like for him emotionally to be a brain surgeon. Um, So... I I agree with you. I didn't anticipate it either, but I think it's been really an amazing part of this show.
1: Very well said. Okay, let's take a little breather. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. And we're back. Well, we wanted to learn a little bit, I guess, pick your brain kind of about <laughs> brains and brain surgery uh, because we love learning here. So we Great. have some questions They may seem a little basic. Big, I
2: love that. Nothing is basic, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, you talk about um, islands of the brain and we read that there were four major areas. Are those
2: areas the same as the islands? Well, actually, the, imagine the areas are like the oceans, mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean, you know, being one of them. And within that ocean, there is an island. So the areas of the brain are going to be the frontal lobe, the temporal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the occipital lobe. And for mm-hmm. instance, in the frontal lobe, in the right side, there is some potential, you know, judgment zones that we are beginning to understand. But on the left side, in the frontal lobe, there's a small little island, and it varies from patient to patient, and I have written about this, where you have very, very strong areas where speech is produced. Mm. And if you stimulate those areas, if you stump them, you can stop the ability of patients to produce speech. They will listen to you and their understanding but they won't produce speech. And then in the temp, and that's called Broca's area. So it's a little island. And in the middle of this ocean, there'll be a little island. Then you go to the temporal lobe. And the challenge is, by the way, that it's various and patient by patient. All right. So it's like, it's not like the same. And the temporal lobe, same deal. There's a vast ocean. And somewhere in the middle, there'll be an area that if you stimulate it and you stump this area with electricity, with current, you will stop the ability of patients to recognize speech we call that hmm. wernicke's area you uh-huh. know so there's a lot of other parts of the brain that we don't understand we are now beginning to understand that there's not such thing as non eloquent brain the entire brain is eloquent we just haven't been able to understand the cables the connections and most importantly how when we do surgery we do lose some function, how do we regain it? How do we help patients? So this is the next frontier in neuroscience.
0: Hmm. Oh, wow. So does this relate to why sometimes patients are awake during brain surgery so that you can be testing which areas of the brain in that specific person are controlling these functions you're talking about?
2: Perfectly, because once again, You go in into this sea. You don't know where the island is. The last thing that you want to do is go through that part of the brain, and boom, you take the island, and that's it. That speech, that motor function, that hand function, the leg function, face function, memory, speech production, whatever, vision, all that all that function can actually go rather rapidly. So yes, so when I go into the operating room and I have a tumor. And I need to understand, and by the way, when you look at a tumor in say, like, oh, right, there is a tumor. The reality is that when you open the brain, many times that brain looks absolutely normal. And you have oh. to make a decision, where are you going to enter? And the initial reaction is the path of least resistance, the closest path. And many times that path is exactly where an island can be. So I have to figure it out, stay away from that island and find a corridor to enter a tumor that is deep down in the brain, or if the brain comes to the tumor or the lesion comes to the surface, can I take the majority of this lesion and leave the islands on the edges, just like a Mm. house at the edge of a cliff?
1: Hmm. Mm. Wow. Oof, what an image. (laughs) So, So what exactly is a brain tumor and how
2: does it form? Number one, there are several types of brain tumors, and I think it's important for your audience to understand. Not all tumors are malignant and cancerous. There Mm -hmm. are some tumors that are considered to be non-malignant, non-cancerous. Two examples that come to me right away that are not necessarily malignant or cancerous are the pituitary tumors. The majority of those are not cancerous. They can produce hormones sometimes. The other ones are the meningiomas, which are tumors that come from the surface of the brain. Most recently, we're beginning to understand that some meningiomas may not necessarily be benign. They could potentially be cancerous, but that's the next frontier. But in general, we think about those as being non-cancerous. The Mm. cancerous tumors, the cancers that you probably heard from Senator McCain, you know, Senator Kennedy, you know, and some, uh, some famous people, you know. Those are called the gliomas and those tend to be invasive and cancerous and they tend to have the classic description of cancer where you have a mass and then you have the little cells going beyond, you know, tentacles going beyond what you can see. And those little cells that are migrating, they're the cancer cells that you can take out the bulk of the tumor, but unfortunately cancer cells have already gone away. Unlike breast skin and lung that go other parts of the brain. The brain is quite interested in the brain. They just keep marching and marching and marching and marching like an army. They don't go outside. At least we don't think they do. Maybe one Hmm. day when we make this disease more chronic, we may find that they indeed go outside of the brain. But for right now, because the survival in general for the very malignant glioblastoma, the one that Senator Kennedy and Senator McCain head. They remember, they survive about 12 to 14 months after the diagnosis. They tend to be devastating. Likely, there are a lot more tumors that are not in that category. So when a patient will call me and this morning, same deal. I got a phone call from a relative, uh, uh, from one of my co-workers relative uh, asking me for a question, a patient that is in another country and They are concerned about a tumor. So let me review the images. Let me look into it before you make any conclusions because you really do need the expertise of someone of my sort of knowledge and my expertise because even then I will tell them sometimes, I don't know what it is. I have a suspicion, but eventually we may need to go in and get diagnosis.
1: Hmm.
0: Just to clarify to make sure I'm understanding. So when you're talking about a brain tumor migrating, you're saying as of now, we're not sure if a, a, a cancer of the brain can go to a different part of the body. But it, when you're talking about it marching and marching and marching, is it getting worse and worse and worse within the brain?
2: Correct. Okay. They tend to be local to the organ. They, they like that microenvironment. Unlike the lung, the breast, the skin can go to the brain and mm-hmm. create a little niche right there. Cancers in the brain, we don't find them in other parts of the body. There's been some isolated reports of patients with organ transplantation. A patient had a brain tumor. Suddenly they had a lung or a heart or a kidney that they donated to someone else. And those patients are immunocompromised. And suddenly those patients can have the cancer. But in general, in Mm. general, and that's why we actually, by the way, we don't do organ transplantation from patients with the malignant brain cancer anymore. So there's Mm -hmm. something about this disease We are in such an early stages, to be honest with you, Jillian and Deanna, about this disease. And we have so much to learn. I mean, think about it. Think about this. You're talking about a cancer that hijacks cells in the brain, brain cells. What's more smart? What's more intelligent than the brain? No other organ, period. And I don't say it because I'm a brain surgeon. It's a reality. (laughs) It's a reality. So imagine this cancer is such a smart cancer. And I've been thinking a lot of, I get to think every single day about how can I, how can we outsmart the cancer? Hopefully one day we will. Hmm.
0: So I was curious about when you're preparing for a complex surgery, what is the preparation like? Do you, I'm sure you're looking at images, you're looking at scams, are you consulting with other physicians, looking at previous similar surgeries? Like, what does it look like to prepare Uh, for a particularly difficult surgery?
2: Well, first and foremost, before I go into the operating room, that surgery has happened in my brain over and over and over. You know the image Mm. that I just told you already about living a house at the edge of a cliff? It was mm-hmm. the first time that I used that analogy because it came to me last night. Last night, as I was dreaming about a tumor that I'm going to take out next week, you know. And uh, and of course, there are many tumors that are similar to the ones that I do, that mm-hmm. as soon as I see them, I know exactly the thinking is fast, just like Malcolm wow. Gladwell described with the power of thinking without thinking. There are some other tumors that made me reflect, and over the weekends, I keep thinking about it. And I need to figure out what am I going to disconnect, how i am going to disconnect. So, Yes. Before I take a patient into the operating room, that surgery happened in my brain, not once, not twice, but I estimate probably a hundred times. And I have thought about every single potential thing that may happen. I have thought about how the patient is going to be positioned. I have thought about how am I going to be positioned. I thought about the time. I thought about the outlier issues that may happen. I thought about how anesthesia, neuromonitor, neuropsychology, everybody, how the patient is going to react. I thought, and I prepared physically and emotionally to be ready for any surprise because I don't want to be surprised. Any surprise, of course, will make my heart pound a little bit faster, but I know that I am prepared and I would know in a reflex exactly what I need to do. It's no different than what athletes do except that I don't have a camera there in the operating room watching every single move that I am making. My trophy is when the patients make it home. And luckily there are so many of them. My failure is not finding a cure for the disease. I love what I do as a brain surgeon, to be honest with you. And I listen to the two of you and and, uh, and with admiration for the work that you guys do as well. Just like you are passionate about what you do. I am passionate about what I'm doing. But I'm also passionate about one day getting people like me out of business so we don't have to go into the brain. The brain wasn't meant to be open. Think about it. If nature if nature would have meant for us to open the brain, it would have given us a window into the brain, all right? We don't have a window like we have it into the eyes. You know, I believe I am a man of faith. I believe in God, and she or he does not have a face, a name. You know, I don't have a picture of it. I have an image in my brain of energy. Something that, you know, that guide us. And I do believe that, you know, what we do is absolutely not natural. So I think that, that we need to, uh, my goal is one day not to have to do it and to find cures via other ways.
1: Mm. Well, we wanted to get a little bit into your life as a kid um, because you mentioned earlier that you used to watch Star Trek and you knew that you wanted to explore frontiers. Is there any way that you pictured what your life would be like when you were a kid?
2: <laughs> Not in a million years. Uh, I, it, sometimes I pinch myself. I have patients coming from all over the world that when I was a kid, I just saw either on television and movies, they were not even dreams that I ever thought of. You know what I mean? I travel around the world and I get treated as if I was royalty, but I am the same kid that grew up very poor, not even in a, a small town outside. I mean, when I, where I grew up, there was no running water. We had no electricity and there was no houses around us for kilometers. You know, it was just truly in the middle of nowhere. That doesn't mean that I had a sad infancy and a sad childhood. On the other hand, I was an explorer. I used to mm. do all kinds of, I used to get into all kinds of travel and, uh, and <laughs> do all kinds of games. I was a. I was a kid that my the greatest challenge that my mom and my dad had, and I admired how they did it. Because I think probably here in the United States, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD. My kids don't believe me sometimes when I tell them that I was a troublemaker. But I got to tell you, when I went into that classroom, boom, something switched in that kid. And I was like the best kid paying attention and absorbing everything. And as soon as the teacher went out, I was a killer. And then the tissue would come back and they couldn't believe everybody. Alfredo did this, Alfredo did that. And, and they'd be like... <laughs> Are you guys kidding me? Why are you guys trying to get this kid in trouble? You know, but I was but it was true because I was actually about a, at one point, I was two years younger than most of my classmates. And I used to get everybody in trouble. And man, by the time I became a teenager, they would be so mad at me. And I remember a few times with my classmates. They they would be so mad at me because I would never get in trouble with the teacher. Oh, they were tired of you. They were tired of you.
0: So when you were a kid who was um, doing really well in class and getting into trouble in between class, what did you think your future was going to be like?
2: I you know it's interesting. I um when I was a kid, I knew it, I was going to be a teacher. And that's mm-hmm. what I did when I was 14 years old. I wanted to be a teacher. Part of it was also because the economic situation in my country was very difficult. And, and that was, uh, I ended up testing out of, you know, 1,000, 1,100 students who took an exam. And they all had to get almost perfect scores coming out of, coming out of what we would consider here middle school. You know, so I was mm-hmm. about 14 years old. I tested and I, I ranked in the top you know, and uh, and I ended up getting into a school to become an elementary school teacher, which was in the town of Mexicali, which I had to travel about an hour and a half. Because Remember, I told you I didn't even live in Mexicali. I live way, way far, far, far away. So we have to travel every day. And I was just a kid. That's what I thought I was going to be. And I still feel that my greatest gift is that Giving patients hope, even with my patients, I love to explain to them what I'm going to do in brain surgery because when I do that, I also, my students, my residents, the people around me love to uh, listen to. You notice that I don't like to use a lot of fancy words because at the end of the day, what we do, if we cannot explain it in ways that people can understand it, then we lose the magic. And it is magical what we do. So, Going back to the question that you made before, if I ever thought that my life was going to be this, no, of course I didn't know. I mean, I, I am still, I see myself as that kid, that young kid, that poor kid. But yeah, I never imagined that one day I would be here interviewed by you guys. I mean, what? You know, and then I also think that I have an imposter syndrome because no matter what I do, I never feel that is enough. And number two, I don't feel that I deserve the attention that you guys give me.
1: Oh, no, wait. <laughs> I have to tell you, that's very kind. But as someone who, like, you know, memorizes words that other people write, I'm like, I'm going to argue that point. <laughs> go ahead, Gillian. You want to no, ask the last ahead, question? Diana. No, no, no ask go the for last... it. Okay, great. Oh. We're all fighting. We're like, please, let me ask. Um, well, we just wanted to ask and uh, follow up the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten from a mentor. Yes.
2: Well, mentors are like tormentors. They want to find <laughs> They walk a fine line. They do. It's a fine line between a mentor and a third mentor. The best mentors that I have had are those who just walk that line so nicely and they step back. And I I do surround myself by a lot of students. I don't know. I've always been like that since I was an undergraduate medical student. And I pass to them the same advice that one of my best mentors ever told me. Number one, surround yourself by people who are much smarter than you. Learn from them. Don't be afraid to acknowledge your flaws, your deficiencies, Mm -hmm. you know, play with your strengths, give them something that they will consider to be valuable and keep learning from them. And when you do that with honesty, with integrity, you'll be surprised how much you keep doing in life. So that's always been the advice that I give in my students.
1: Thank you so much for this interview.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this has been incredible. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. You guys are wonderful. Send me the link. I look forward to hearing this. Let's take one
1: last break, and then we've got an interview with actor Mary Steenburgen. We'll be right back.
0: And we're back. It's story time.
1: A little while ago, we had a really fascinating conversation with Oscar-winning actress and award-winning songwriter Mary Steenburgen.
0: Yes, something happened inside Mary's brain that changed her life, and it was such a fascinating story that we had to share it during story time.
1: Okay,
3: let's listen to that chat. I had a, an experience in 2007 that actually changed the sort of Function slash chemistry, or whatever you want to call it, of my brain, so that I actually kind of hear music all the time. There is a book called Musicophilia that's written by Dr. Oliver Sachs. He became interested in um, the study of people who just had a somewhat normal relationship with music that for whatever reason developed an obsessive relationship with music. In the book, which by the way, I never read all the way through because I started it and it <laughs> it freaked me out so much because it kind of pathologized something that that I knew I couldn't get rid of. So I, I, I was more interested in how do I move forward than let me try to name this thing. But In his case, there were some people that had brain tumors. Um, If I do have one, it hasn't shown up yet on any MRIs or whatever. And it's apparently very slow growing (laughs) because this has been going on now for a long time. (laughs) But um, there were people that had brain tumors. There were people that were in a car accident. There was somebody that was struck by lightning. And they had a disturbance to the brain and then they developed some version of a, um, a a musical obsession. So mine was just this really innocuous surgery on my right arm and it was a life-changing moment. I had really... Um, Mostly experienced it as me just wanting the sound of my old brain back. I just wanted what felt, uh, quieter. It felt like suddenly I'd gone from, you know, a peaceful, most of the time, movie to an overscored movie. You know, that, that's what it felt like. And, um, and everything, Initially, this has calmed down a lot as I've gotten used to it um, or as I've just incorporated it into my life. But every street sign I would see, I would hear it as a lyric to a song or I would hear a melody connected to the street sign, you know. Um, And you can imagine people talking to me saw a difference. My kids saw a difference. The person, of course, that was most concerned about it was Ted, my husband, who it was scary to him at first to have your wife be so different and clearly struggling with something that no one could hear but her. And um, I just remember looking in mirror in the bathroom and saying, you know what? It's not going away. I think you better figure this out. You have to make this work. You can't can't go off the deep end. There are too many people that count on you. And you just are going to have to make this work. and And I literally that day started buying books on songwriting, reading biographies on people whose songs I admired, trying to understand. i didn't I did not know, I mean, I sort of vaguely knew what a verse in a chorus was vaguely. But that's about the extent of my knowledge about songwriting at that moment. I was wondering about
0: what your relationship to music was like before 2007.
3: Well, my first concert was in fifth grade in Houston, Texas, and it was the Beatles. So (gasps) um, concert-wise, I kind of peaked in fifth grade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... um, I've, music was always an emotional thing for me. I mean, I think it is for most people. I think that's part of the beauty of it is that it cuts through all the nonsense in our heads, you know, and just goes to the deepest, most integral part of who we are. And um, so I always experienced that. I used to, um, you know, we had a very tiny house, and but we did have— record player, and I would lie on the floor and in front of it and play, sometimes it was Broadway, Broadway show tunes and things like that, but also a lot of Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and Joni Mitchell. Oh my gosh, the Joni Mitchell Blue album. And, um, you know, I always felt like it took me away and the parts of my life that were uh, hard and sad. That was definitely the antidote by far. It was the only real antidote I, I kind of had. And so I I think I had a very emotional um, relationship with music, but it never dawned on me that I would be connected in any way other than as a listener.
1: Can we talk a little bit about how it felt, your connection to music after 2007?
3: Um the the thing that happened to me didn't give me talent what it gave me was an obsession and um it gave me um a focus and it was it was in the beginning quite an uncomfortable focus because i i literally couldn't think about anything besides music which is which is tough when you're a mother and you're a wife and you're an actor if i had had to act during the initial few months of uh, this thing happening to me, I I would not have been able to have learned my lines. I wouldn't have been able to have done a scene with anybody. I, it, it took a while for it to settle down and, and for me to make peace with it and then to start to learn and to grow and to—eventually, it led to me writing with other songwriters, and I particularly love Nashville for this because Nashville, regardless of— you know, a lot of people there focus on country music, but there's all kinds of music in Nashville. And what there are in Nashville is just world-class musicians and world-class songwriters and people that live and breathe to write music. And they've been my teachers. And what I would say to people is that the biggest thing that happened to me or the biggest takeaway for me was that I said yes. And, And it's embarrassing to be 54 years old and start something new that you're going to be the most humble person in the room at when you've been successful at something else. You know, it's it's like it's embarrassing to tell your friends something and just have them look at you like you're crazy or like you like you're I don't know people just didn't get it and I just kept not caring. If if anyone understood it or not, I just wanted to write music. And it wasn't that I thought I was going to suddenly perform the music. I don't even write for myself. I write for other people that are better than me at singing to sing. And the joy of it is the writing and also the collaboration with another person or a couple of people. It's just such an intimate, magical thing to make music with someone else. You know, that's an amazing thing to get to do.
0: How does that collaboration differ from the experience of being on an actor and working with writers and directors and co-stars?
3: Well, it's very connected to acting for me because they're both storytelling. I mean, every song is a story, you know, it's either about a celebration of love or, or, um, an expression of heartbreak or it's about a memory that you have or whatever the endless amount of things that a song can be about, it's equally endless to have stories that that you can tell as an actor. So to me, they're very um, similar. And I also love that the older you get as an actor, the more um, perhaps you're not as, you know, beautiful to look at in some ways as you may have been when you were younger. But what you also do have is you have more stories in your psyche and your soul. You have more leaps of joy and and more moments of sorrow to pull from, you know? And so I, I feel like I've, Barely scratch the surface of where I can go as an actor, but I really feel that as a songwriter. Um, I feel like I, there's so many songs to write, and I'm so excited to do it and Another thing's cool about songwriting that you can 't do as an actor is you know i 'm writing um the music for an animated film right now and the, and the film has animals in it, and I will never play. Unless I just do it as a voice in animation, I'll never play an animal most likely in a movie, but i as a songwriter, get to imagine the voice of these little creatures and what they would have to say and what they would be mad about or sad about or whatever. and um that's been so cool to do.
1: And has this um becoming a song has becoming a songwriter has it changed? Your perception of the world at all?
3: Well, I'm definitely aware. Um, I I wrote a song with um, Lucy Silvis and John Osborne of Brothers Osborne. Um, It was based on a story John Osborne told us one night. We're trying to figure out what to write. And John told this story about his brother, T.J. Osborne, who had imbibed some sort of something, and they were out in the desert. And I'll leave it up to you to figure it out. But um, anyway, he, he was lying on the ground, and John heard his brother say, Oh, Earth, you big old thing, you. And I said, That's what we have to write. We have to write that song. And so we wrote a love song to The Planet, Called to Earth, You Big old Thing You. And it was actually this year, it was the closing song for the worldwide Earth Day celebration. Wow. And I love that song because songs like that, um, it makes a little tiny difference in the world in a positive way. So I am inclined as a as a kid who grew up, you know, with protest songs and songs in the 60s that to me... Push the world into a better place and reminded the world of its conscience, you know, I, I do like the potential for that. I mean, I'm not saying everything I write feels that way, but I, I, love, I love that. Thank you so
1: much for making the time to do this.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you.
0: amazing.
1: I I mean, this was a dream. I've admired her work for a long time. Same. (laughs) Do you do anything to look after your brain?
0: You know, I've recently started doing a lot of the games on the New York Times website. So they have like a daily spelling bee where you're given a certain number of letters. You have to make as many uh, words as you can out of that. They also Ah. have another game where it's like a, a image of a square with letters around it and you have to use all the the letters to make words but um, it can't be like the letters can't be next to each other so it's kind of like you're drawing these lines around the square Um, and they have like a tile matching game so I have been doing those uh, pretty consistently which is fun it's also making me uh, I'm very bad at spelling so I think it's also probably good for my (laughs) spelling ability (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, that sounds really cool. I want to let you know about, um, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this, uh, but I lo- but this is a game that I like to play. It's called Guess My Word. Oh. It's online. If you just okay. Google Guess My Word, um, every day there's a new word, and you just put a word in a box and you try to guess if that's the word that this person is, you know, <laughs> thinking of, and it'll tell you like. Your word is either before or after the word, and you just kind of try to guess in it either as few guesses or as quickly as you can. Oh, that's fun. fun. It's fun.
0: All right. Well, speaking of fun, it's time to read some reviews. Yay. (laughs) This one is from The Healthy Brit. They left us some thoughts on our episode, A Beginner's Guide to Astonishing Volcanoes. The volcanic episode really rocked my world. <laughs> I'm giving a lot of uh, energy to my reading today. The volcanic episode really rocked my world. How crazy is it that land wouldn't exist without volcanoes and that they spit fire? I would most definitely run if one were coming at me.
1: Okay, the healthy Brit and I are on the same page. I really appreciate that. If health, The healthy Brit, if we're ever in a volcanic area, we can run together. Same. If you have not listened to that episode, please do. And also please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You never know. We might read your comments on the show.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We're at Periodic Talks.
1: This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon.
0: Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns.
1: Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres.
0: Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana.
1: Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.